Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. This morning, um, I was getting dressed. Dan goes to bed late. I, I go to bed early. This is one of the things that's always been, like, we get along so well, but there's this, like, this, I'm tired at 10 o'clock, and he's still going a lot of times. So he, he came in, and he, you know, he got in bed, it's like 1-ish, 12.30, 1-ish. And um, I woke up really early, and so I, I was up, I don't know, around, around 6, and um, early compared to him. Uh, actually, by the way, I want to give a shout-out to the, there's like a, crew of guys called the 4AM crew, like, or something. Eric has, like, led some sort of battalion of men that choose, <laughs> choose to wake up at 4AM, and that's, you guys are absolute savages to do that. That's no joke. Um, Dylan's told me about it. He's, like, learning how to get up crazy early to be in God's Word, and uh, he said it's been awesome. He's, like, getting a lot out of his day doing that. But, so I'm getting dressed. I'm being really quiet because I don't want to wake up Dan. And it's dark, and I've got, like, the flashlight on my phone, and I'm, like, my, chain, and my keys are, like, rattling around, and I'm, like, trying to be very careful. I put my sweatshirt on. I leave. I go to breakfast. I'm, I'm hanging out with everybody. I get here. I'm getting ready to, for preaching. I take my sweatshirt off, and I realize I accidentally put on the same shirt I was wearing yesterday. So I am as disgusting as you think I am, <laughs> but this was an accident. I didn't mean to do that. So... Um, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, Genesis is where we're going to be at. So go ahead and find Genesis chapter 6. Yesterday we were talking about how, uh, how to be a righteous remnant. It was an introduction to this concept that, that Christians, as, as, as we get to the last of the last days, that are, there are going to be things that change about the environment in which we do ministry. There are going to be things that are altered, things that are more difficult, things that become more painful. And we know this because, well, first of all, we're dispensationalists. And so when we look at the Word of God, we, we see it in terms of stewardships. And we can see at the end of every stewardship, there's always a great suffering and persecution that comes to the point of God hitting the reset button. His judgment comes, and then He starts... His, he starts a new and unique work. We know this, right? Yeah? D2 students, right? This is how, this is how God has worked over and over again. And we know that there's, there's one culminating last of the last dispensation before we enter the millennium. And, and, and what I was suggesting yesterday is that we are pushing up against that time period. We're, we're entering into... A time in which the Bible prophesies very carefully, and as we look at our world, we can see that things are beginning to align themselves. And I'm not saying that so that we can put our tinfoil caps on and, and you know, start, you know, a, a conspiracy blog. There's enough of those. Christians are doing enough of those. And I'm, I'm, I want to seriously say that. Christians are doing enough of that crap. And, and the truth is, all the time that they spend hypothesizing and theorizing if they truly believed this was the last of the last days, they would be in the streets preaching. 
So what they say, when they're saying it, you can just assume it's a lie. Okay, we've got, we've got our book, okay? And we got all the commentary we need. And so we're going to assume what needs, we're, we're going to assume only as much as what the Bible tells us. And I think most of us believe that we're in the last of the last days. So we're going to function that way. And it'll probably get worse. We think it's bad now, it'll probably get worse. But we talked about this idea of a remnant, being a remnant people. And real quick, I just want to review the definitions that we covered yesterday. Um, the first thing that we said that a remnant is, if I can find it in my notes. Um, definition number one, a remnant is a believer who stands alone in order to stand for God. Okay, and what we mean by that is that all of us are going to have to determine that regardless of what the person next to us is doing, we are still going to worship the Lord. As people are sifted away, as people disappear in ministry, as we see the world growing more and more hostile, we have to determine that no matter what happens, we stand with the Lord and he stands with us. And if it's only just the two of us, right, we can, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. And we've got examples of that all through scripture. The other definition we use is a remnant, is a, is a believer or believers who trade temporary pain for a long-term peace. Very difficult. Very difficult for a, for a Laodicean person to get their mind around that. Choosing pain, choosing suffering, choosing difficulty, when there's comfort to be had all around us. I mean, life is, like, is, regardless of what you think, how difficult your life might be, life is fairly easy in America for most people. For most people. And, uh, and you know, even though, though I wore the same shirt two days in a row, I, have, I promise I have lots of shirts. And I'm fairly comfortable. I've got, a, I've got a decent-sized wardrobe, and I've got a cushy bed at home. It's better than the bed here, right? And, uh, and I've got a house, and I've got, you know, and, I've, and, and things are at some level comfort. And the comforts of this world, it's very easy for them to cause us to be delusionary about what our life actually is. All the things around us on a day-to-day -day basis, especially the materialistic things and the ambitions, have this tendency to delude us and convince us of a reality that actually isn't real. None of this is actually, this is so insignificant. There are only a couple things in the world of any value. And that's the, the word of God and the souls of men. That's it. But man, why do we have such a hard time believing that? If we can get our head around it, then that means, if we can get our head around that concept, that means that we can put up with a lot of suffering and pain. We can endure. We can endure the loss, loss of loved ones. We can endure failures in our families. And, and when people struggle around us, we can conceptualize that. And we can, we can be hopeful knowing that there's a long-term peace ahead of us. We can get our head around that. It's very difficult, though. Very hard. Now, here's the deal. This is the thing I want to point out right now uh, before we get into this study on Noah. Is that just because you are a remnant, you are, of, you are a Christian in Laodicea, near the end of that age, you, you sense that that's happening, just because you are a remnant does not mean you're righteous. Like, it would be false for you to say because you attend a Bible-believing church and it's Laodicea, that you are somehow a righteous remnant. 
Okay, just because you're a remnant doesn't imply the fact that you're righteous. And so don't get that confused. Righteousness is, a something, is something that you grapple with in relation with God. And we're going to cover that today. We're going to talk about Noah as a, as a framework as a, for a righteous rem, remnant. Are you guys awake? I know you stayed up late. I know you stayed up late. So just smack yourself around a little bit. Get the blood rushing to your head. Let's pray. And, uh, and then we'll start. Everybody's in Genesis chapter 6? It's happening again. Got that under control back there? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, I'm, I am excited about teaching this. Um, if, I'm, if I'm perfectly honest, teaching this is a little scary because as I say it, um, I, I, I fully realize that I r- rarely live the reality of my remnant status. And I, I live a life that is indulgent. And um, I am, I'm caught up in the affairs and the cares of the world way too often. And, uh, and so, Lord, I just pray that as this study progresses, that you would work on my heart and on my mind, and I would begin to identify and learn to identify with the things that we see in the lives of these holy and, and righteous men, men deserving of the, the hall of faith even, men that uh, counted their lives um, worthless, as they counted it as dung, before you, and uh, they were they were silenced by their fear of you. You are a troublesome and powerful and holy God. You deserve our fear, and you deserve a, us lowering lowering ourselves before you and, and getting getting low in the posture of our heart and our mind. You deserve that. You deserve us to call you king. And Lord, uh, the only redeeming thing about any of that is the fact that such a troublesome God is also our friend, and and you walk with us. And so Lord, help us today, help us to learn, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Noah, there's so much to say about this. And so if this story is intriguing to you, we offer a class on Genesis where Pastor Sam goes pretty deep on some of this content, but I do want to lay a bit of a groundwork for what's happening here. We're talking about, I guess is approximately 4,000 years ago, in an era that is often referred to in in theology as an antediluvian time period, it's pre-flood time period. And the earth is just a completely different place during this time, and I want to kind of paint the picture of the world in which Noah lived. Can you do that with me for just a second, just to get a context? Is that okay? The first thing we need to know is that the geology of the earth was drastically different. Okay, it was drastically different. So the the way the world looks now is a post-destruction visual experience. 
So when you go to places like the Grand Canyon, places where you can see that there's been some sort of decimation on the face of the earth, you can see something critical happened here. Well, much of that wear and tear on the earth has everything to do with the power of a, of a worldwide flood. And we can look and we can see the strata of the earth, the geology of the earth, and we can see, we can see eternity past before the creation of the world, okay, when, when all matter was just matter, right, when the earth was without form and void. And we can see the same material compressed and pressured and revealed because a, a mighty water rushed through that. And we see potentially billions of years of material existing here in the matter of the earth. It's just crazy, and there's so much we don't understand about it. And I'll, I'll, I mean, I've, I've read the books, and I've watched the documentaries, and it's still, it's, it's mind-boggling. And I, and I don't have all the answers. I have some theories. But, uh, but we know that, that the earth just looked drastically different. The, top, the topography of the earth was way different prior to the flood. Some would even say that this is pre the breaking of Pangaea, that perhaps all of the, the continents were still one at this time period. Uh, you know, um, there's a lot of things that people say, but uh, there's a couple things we do know. And Genesis chapter 2 tells us that at the time, that the earth was watered with a mist that, that came up from the earth. And we know that that was a thing. Now, at that time, in Genesis chapter 2, we know that there was no rain. Whether or not there was, had ever been any rain in Genesis chapter 6, we're not 100% sure of. We kind of guess that maybe there had, it had never rained on earth, which makes all of this even crazier, right? So it was just a different world. The cosmology, particularly of the earth, was just slightly different. And we know that human beings also live way longer than they do today. Right? Some, you guys ever read through Genesis and you're reading like so-and-so lived like 800 years? You're like, what is that about? That's crazy, right? And it seems almost like myth, but the world supported that, right? The natural world supported that. God supported that. He was behind that. And men just lived a really, really long time. So the life expectancy was, was nuts. Noah's dad lived 777 years. Okay, and Noah himself lived 950 years. So that's a really long time. Now we know the Earth's population, check this out, this is really crazy. The Earth's population was probably somewhere between 4 and 8 billion people. We don't ever think about that. But if you go and you do the math, um, which I'm not going to do because I might sound like an idiot, um, I might misexplain it, but because of the, the length of people's lives, okay, procreation... And the commission to procreate would have been, like, if someone was able to do that over a thousand years, how many children could you have? And they did. We know that they had lots of kids. If you've ever spent any time, you know, in the Pentateuch, that means that you've probably read a lot of genealogy, all right? And so the earth was, was highly populated, and it could have easily, there could have easily been eight billion people on earth. And, and so, by the way, there's eight billion people on earth now. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That there was potentially the earth could have looked, in terms of population, exactly like what it does right now. Have you ever thought about that? Pretty wild, huh? Now, we also know, what, is, what in the heck? Is it doing it all over again? It's that one. 
Is that, is it, is, no? Just keep going? I can't see your face, Dan, because there's like, that light is so bright that all I see is a glowing aura on your face. Do we just keep going? Okay, it's not distracting? Okay. So we know also that Satan has a strategy that he cultivated in these early, this first 1,500 years or so of the earth, right? He had a plan and a strategy in mind. And the very first strategy was a disinformation strategy, okay? What I mean by that is that Satan was working to confuse the words of God, okay? And we could very easily refer to it. Today we call it fake news, Right? What is the truth? We don't know. That seems like truth. No, that seems like truth. And it's, it's hard to understand. And so Satan, just like Russia, was running a disinformation campaign. Right? I mean, Russia only just, they just stole that from Satan. Is that too political? I mean, does anybody not know that, like, is this news to anybody? Russia's like trying, Russia's trying to convince us that things aren't true. They've got fake Facebook accounts and they're pretending to be people and they're making up lies and videos and all these things that aren't even true, trying to get us to sow confusion among one another. Which is exactly what Satan has always done. That's what he did in the garden. Dan talked about it last night. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, Satan takes truth, twists it a little bit, sells it. And it works. And the result of that is an exceptional amount of idolatry in the world. And so by the time we get to Noah, the earth is exceptionally corrupt. Crazy. Now the other, the other strategy of Satan, I don't know how to say this. Some of you have never heard this before. And I, I, know, I know that I've laid the, the stage for being kind of crazy already this weekend. Uh, but what I'm about to say might be the craziest thing I say. Okay? So if you don't know this already, um, hold on. The other strategy of Satan was to in, uh, affect the genetic makeup of human beings. Okay? There was a, he was waging a campaign against the genetic makeup of humanity. And so, I'm going to say this straightforward, okay? It's the only way I know how to say it. Is that fallen angels came to earth and procreated with women. Okay? So some of you are like, yeah, Brandon, I know. Okay? I know that. Others of you are like, when do we leave now? Um, that's what the word of God absolutely tells us. We're going to read about it here in a minute. Now, I'm not going to get into all of like the defining uh, what the sons of God is or whatever. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to tell you right now, read it, do the study. There are five instances of the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, and every one of them refers to angelic beings. Okay, just know that, just know that. And so, so what, why would Satan want to do that? That's the question that we'd ask. Okay, we know why he wants to lie, that kind of makes sense. He tricked Adam and Eve, they fall, sin has come into the world. We, we get that, we get his, his reason for doing that. Why would he want to disturb the genetic code so bad? Okay, well let's read Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. 
And the Lord God said unto the serpent, okay, this is right after the sin. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all thy days of life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, so that day, as they're being excluded from the garden, the Lord is giving his judgments to Adam and Eve and to the earth. There's a judgment against the earth. It's cursed. And there's a judgment against animals and beasts. And there's a curse against them. That includes the serpent. And what he says to the serpent is, hey, I want you to know. He prophesies. God prophesies right here. I want you to know that one day the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head. And so, at that moment, a new campaign begins. And he's trying to disrupt the genetic code of humanity in order to prevent the birth of Jesus Christ. You can follow that, you can trace it, and you can learn that story. All right, we're not going to do that today. We're focusing on Noah. Now, he was fairly successful at this. How successful, we can't quite tell. But we know that um, in Genesis, well, let's read it. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 6. You guys are there? And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And so the Lord's telling us there's coming a day where the, the length of the life of a man is going to greatly decrease. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were old men of renown. And so the offspring of angels and humans is giants. Is everybody with me at least intellectually? Like, you're like, my heart's not there. It's disgusting. It's vile. But I'm with you. Okay, let's just go, let's just go from there. So Satan's at work in the earth. And uh, as you can imagine, God's looking at things, and he sees all this idolatry, and he sees all this wickedness. It's rampant. And he says to himself, I'm done. I'm done. The world is corrupt. Satan has had his way. They've turned their backs on me. We've got, we've got to do something. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, he talks about the giants. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now when God is grieved, it is likely that he will respond with action. God grieves, just like we do. When we suffer loss, God, God grieves just the same way that, that we do when we suffer loss, and, and he's hurting. But he's also the creator. And, and so he has an action plan. And his plan is to judge the earth. And the Lord said, verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for repented, uh, repenteth me that I have made them. God is forced to judge. You know he doesn't want to do it. You understand? God is not, is not looking forward to opportunities to judge people. He's forced to do it. His creation has rebelled. 
God is done, and he's ready to start over. And so this word repent, just briefly, it doesn't mean that God made a mistake. Okay, it means that he's grieved. It literally, it repenteth him. The word means he's grieved, and he's grieved into action. Something has to change. You understand? The word repent, is the way we often describe it, means there's a turning. A turning. And God's ready for a turning. He's grieved to the point where he's ready to turn another direction. Now what we discovered in Ezekiel chapter 14 is that Noah is very, very important as a model for us of what it means to be a righteous remnant. And so here we're introduced to Noah. So are you ready to actually pay attention? Because if you've been zoning out, this is the part where you really need to pay close attention. The world is jacked. Judgment is coming. Ezekiel chapter 14, we can overlay that here in this passage and we can see God doing the same work here. Does that make sense? So now, now, there is one man who distinguishes himself among the entire earth. Think about that. Think about 8 billion people. Think about the population of our current earth. There's one, one righteous person. Can you get your head around that? That's crazy. That's crazy. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and, and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God, and Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're going to break down Noah real quick. Okay, The very first thing that we need to see about him as an as a individual that is a righteous remnant in a wicked and perverse generation, the very first thing that we need to see about him is that he found grace which is always the most important thing. Always. The very first thing that it says about Noah is that he found grace. The, the phrase found grace is a very interesting one, isn't it? It seems almost contradictory. But it points something out to us very, very early on in Scripture. Is that God does not force grace upon someone. Which as a side note, is a reform perspective. Okay? Noah found the grace that God extended. He found it. If you study that word, it doesn't matter. Study it in the Hebrew. This word means Noah found grace. He found a grace that no one else found because no one else was willing to look for it. Grace was bestowed by God. But Noah also found it. He discovered it. It means that grace was being dispensed to the earth. But Noah was the one that was willing to lay hold on it. It means that God was extending his love, his affection, and his favor to humanity. And yet, only one man on the entire planet of 8 billion people was actually willing to reach out and to receive it. That's freaking nuts. Now listen to me. The things that I'm going to say, you're going to, you're going to have a really hard time re grappling with it. I'm asking for you to grapple with these things in your mind and in your heart. Because we have heard this story so many times. I mean, a lot of us from our childhood. This is, maybe, maybe, 
from a faith perspective and an intellectual perspective, you get, yeah, Noah, that happened in the flood, that happened, that happened. But in our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us in this room treat this as myth. And that's wicked unbelief. This happened, because my Bible told me so. This actually happened. And what we have here is one man out of potentially 8 billion people on earth who is willing to say, I hear the voice of God and I receive it. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. He wants to give grace. God is anxious to give grace. But he only gives it to those who are willing to walk with him and walk uprightly. Proverbs 8.35 For whoso findeth me findeth life and should obtain favor of the Lord. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We come to the throne of grace. It's there, it's ready, it's waiting, it's prepared, it's for us, we're invited. The invitation has been extended over and over again in our lives and over and over again throughout the history of humanity. The invitation is there. The throne room is open. Let us enter. That is where we find grace for help in time of need. Now listen to me. We've been in Acts, and I really like this, this verse. We've been in Acts chapter 17. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and it says, he, this, is where, this is where Paul's on Mars Hill, and he's talking with all the philosophers and all those guys who are living in darkness and in and, 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 and philosophical intrigue, and they're caught up in the academia of their day, and they're obsessed with, with, with learning, and their ears are tickled. They want their ears tickled. And so this is, this is what Paul says to them. And hath made of one blood, he's talking about God, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the, all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. Okay, so the, the picture in my mind that, that when I read that is I think about is one groping in the darkness. I remember in high school, um, getting up in the middle of the night, I don't know if I went to go pee, I don't remember what it was, but it was the middle of the track season, and I'm walking around the house in the dark in the middle of the night, and I, uh, I ended up accidentally kicking a table and broke my toe, and it sucked. I was out for like, I was out basically for the rest of the season. <clears throat> and that's because I was groping about in the dark, now, all of us are groping about in the dark. Like, the lost world is in the dark, and they live in the dark, and they try to make the best of being in the dark. But the thing is, is that what the Bible says is that Christ is always in proximity. He's always nearby. If we would simply feel for him, we're feeling for everything else. Like, like where's that good job at? I know it's somewhere around here. But if we would simply reach out for Christ, the grace is literally right there. All we have to do is determine that it's Christ that we want. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is talking about. The grace is there, and it was, the grace was there in the times of Noah, but only one man was willing to take it. 
Here's key point number one. The righteous remnant is familiar with the accessibility of grace. The righteous remnant is familiar with the accessibility of grace. You know, one of the greatest issues among Christians is that we are easily discouraged. And we use phrases like, I hear this from time to time, frustrated, burnt out, tired, not good enough scared. These are things I hear Christians say. And these are statements that people make when they don't know grace is literally within reach. See, when you discover this, it's like invincibility. Because no matter how much you mess up, if you're living in the grace of Jesus Christ, there's always room for strength and power and love and affection. It's always there. The joy is there. The peace is there. But the problem is whether or not we lay hold on it. If we're busy groping about in the dark for anything else, we will not find it. What we're talking about is Christians who who live as righteous remnants in the world. And they face the opposition that we've talked about from day to day so far. And they feel the hostility. And they feel the Laodicean age soaking into their life. And maybe they feel frustrated in their faith, or maybe they're angry about something at church, or maybe they're distracted by something, or maybe you're feeling burnt out or tired by ministry. You've just been doing so much. I mean, let's get this in perspective. You're not the only Christian on earth. And let's get some more perspective. Grace is literally right there. It's been with you. The question is whether or not you're going to lay hold on it and know that you're loved despite your circumstances. I mean, that's what grace is, right? It's the gift of love despite the fact that you never earned it. It's love bestowed. It's unconditional. It's forgiveness. And it's always right there. And the knowledge of that and the heart belief of that results in invincibility. I mean, I literally can't. When I know that I'm loved by the creator of the universe, I can't be touched I can't be afraid of that person at work. I can't be afraid of the mocking voices in the world. When I fall down and I sin, I don't lay there. I don't, when I mess up, which I will, I will all the time. I'm going to mess up every day. Like Dan said last night from Romans, anything that's not done in faith is sin. I do it all the time. I walk down the street without faith. I'm a freaking sinner. I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. My garments are clean. So despite the fact that I don't always act righteous, I'm made righteous in Him. And His grace is always with me. And if I believe that and I act on that, and I'm familiar with that, which many of us aren't, I am invincible. Nothing can touch me. Take my life. It's not mine anyway. It's all good. It's like literally... Everything is all good. Mocking, hatred, joy, peace, just everything. It's just all good. Why? It's because what God has for me. And his grace is with me. This is the problem, is that we're not familiar with it. And so we get in these ruts and we get in these, we start thinking crazy thoughts like our life isn't good. Well, who gives a crap about that? That's not what we're talking about. Our life isn't good. Shut up. You are literally, you're not the last Christian on earth. You want to talk about a bad life? Noah's got his family in hiding. 
I mean, you can just imagine he's living like in the woods somewhere because if he goes into the urban setting, there's giants everywhere procreating. I mean, like, do you understand the difference in your reality versus his? And you've got something to complain about? This dude had something to complain about. And instead, he found grace. So the righteous remnant is familiar with the accessibility of grace. Let's look on. Verse 9. And Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. The word just essentially means righteous. And the word perfect, not like our understanding of perfect. When we say perfect, we mean like some sort of ridiculous, exceptional idea of what it means to be a human being. The word perfect means mature or whole, virtuous. See, Noah was right in the eyes of God and perfect in the midst of his generation. In fact, Noah was literally the only righteous man on earth in a wicked and perverse world. Here's a question. Listen, how, how do you expect to survive in a world that has completely abandoned morality? How do you expect to live when you can get on, you can look at pornography in two clicks? The most handsome man, the most beautiful woman. You can get on an app and you can hook up Take no time at all. No time at all. Get exactly what you need. You live in that world. Talk about, talk about gluttony. Uh, let's just, for a moment now, let's just talk about gluttony. You can have fast food delivered from any place with DoorDash directly to your house. You can eat out every meal of the day like a, like a stupid slob. It's crazy. And like the crazy thing about COVID is do we not all sense that the accessibility of sin is even more prevalent? I mean, the struggles are only more and more real. How do you expect to live justly and perfect in a world where immorality is as rampant as it, as it is? How do you expect to be a missions-minded believer if you're obsessed with sin? I just want to say that, that you're going to sin, and that's why we found grace. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. Noah sinned. That's not the point. He was righteous and perfect because he'd found grace, and he determined to live righteously. This is not complicated. We make this so complicated. He was determined to obey And so what it says is it says that he was perfect in his generation. Do you know what his generation looked like? So here we have is this patriarch, and he's living in a world that's so corrupt, and when people see him, they know he's just, even though they have completely changed what morality is. They've flipped it on its head. They've made immorality good, and they've made morality bad, but yet when they look, when the perverse generation looks upon Noah in their heart of hearts, that they know that he is the perfect man in their generation. Is that you? 
Are you just? Are you righteous? Well, no, I mean, I struggle, I struggle with pornography. You said pornography, and I struggle with that. Or I, or I struggle with thoughts of depression. Or, or I, do, I treat people bad, or I gossip a lot. I'm a backbiter. I'm, I'm mean to people, and I don't, you know, don't want to be, but I just am. And, and so, no, I'm not, I'm not righteous. I, I, I know that, and I've been struggling with it all weekend. We talked last, Pastor Dale was preaching last night about laying down uh, uh, false pursuits, and, and I wanted to come forward because I could sense in my heart that there's something I'm struggling with, and I need to put a monument down. And, 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 I, and listen to me, that's all a bunch of, that's crap. You think, you think that it's something you can do to be right with God? There's nothing magical about being down here. There's nothing magical about you acknowledging the fact that you're wicked. It's not just going to click. You need the help of God. You need grace. To be righteous. There's three types of people that deal with sin. Did you know that? Three. First, the first one is, is the Christian that ignores it. It's not in the notes. Everybody's like, uh-uh. There's it. No, I just, I just made this up right before. Um, there's three types of people that deal with sin. The first one is the person who chooses to ignore it, which was a lot of people last night. Some people came up here. They didn't ignore it. That was awesome. And then some of you just sat there and ignored it. And you're hoping that over time it'll just take care of itself. It'll just disappear. I'll just, just some maturing, just be, if I'm at church a little bit longer, thing, some of these things will just work themselves out. Okay, fine. But some of you are actually just ignoring it. You're not, you're not going to God at all, and you think that, that it's going to fix itself. It's not going to. You're lying. There's another type of person who is overcome with guilt over their sin. And that's the type of person that sometimes is, is up front like we saw last night. And they're up, we could do this again next week if that message was preached and they'd come forward again because they're so guilty about their sin. They're trapped in the guilt of their sin. And over and over again, they, they, they beat themselves up and in the quiet of their, of their heart, they hate themselves. And I know that's a lot of people in this room. You practice self-hate all the time. You beat yourself up. You can never be right. Nothing is ever going to be good. Nothing ever is ever going to be right in your life. You're always just going to be making mistakes. You're the worst person in, in Kaya or at Living Faithfully Summit or in the, in the, in the college and young adult group. I'm not, I'm not like so-and-so. They're so awesome, and they do this, and I'll never be like that. And I have this problem, and I always mess up this way, and that's who I am, and you're overcome with guilt. Can't do anything with that. Can't do anything with that. There's no... You can't, you can't live justly if you're in that prison. And then there's those that practice grace. That's the third. There's those that practice grace. Those are the ones that say, I know I'm a freaking slob. I know I'm, I'm filthy. I'm a worm. I can never do what's right. I never will do what's right. I'll always mess up, but I'm totally cool. <laughs> I'm totally cool with that. I never, I never could be good enough. I never could. I never could do it. And my justice and my righteousness, it's not from me. It's from you, and I need you. I need you every day. I need you to guide me. See, the reason that Noah was righteous in his living is because he was empowered by grace. He had the capacity, by grace, to exhibit the character qualities of the God that he worshipped, by grace. Now, if Noah had the ability 
to live a testimony of righteousness in his generation without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, mind you. Big factor. Then what the freak is your excuse? I mean, honestly, what is your excuse for not living justly? This dude doesn't even have the indwelling of the Spirit. And you're over there moping about your sin as though you'll never... You suck. Who cares? I mean, one of the best things you can do is accept the suckiness of the person sitting next to you. That's a great place to start. It's to love one another unconditionally, and then maybe you'll start recognizing that your suckiness is not a big deal to God. He knows you're a filthy worm. He knows that. And he, he wants to use you. He calls you child. He makes you righteous. He gives you value. He gives you an inheritance. He gives you the inheritance that he's willing to give his son, Jesus Christ. He's willing to share that with you. You don't get to call yourself wicked and despised and hated and filthy. You don't get to call yourself. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. So freaking act like it. And quit moping around. Quit acting like you're the worst person that you know. Quit hiding your sin. Who cares? Share it with your friend. Start praying about it. Start dying to it. Get vulnerable. Get open. You're not ever going to be, you're going to be 80 years old and you're going to have all new types of sin that you struggle with because you suck. And that does not keep God from using you. He wants to call you just. He wants to call you righteous. Lay hold on his grace and be empowered. In a, in a wicked and perverse generation. Romans 8.2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do And that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, condemned sin in, the sin in the flesh. Check this out. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Key point number two. That's right, we're only on number two. Key point number two. The righteous remnant is ruled by the Spirit of God. In other words, the key to being just is laying hold on God's grace and choosing to follow His Spirit. And just as grace connected to this concept of justness, likewise is this concept of living in the, in the righteousness of God's Spirit connects to our next concept. Okay, now, but listen to me. This idea of the Spirit is crucial because you do have the Spirit of God and that righteousness was bestowed upon you and you are set free. Now, you have to utilize that. You have to use that. You have to leverage it in your life. You have to yield to it. It's not just, it's not just a fun, novel idea that you have the Spirit living inside of you, that God indwells you. That's not, that's not some cute thing. That's a serious thing. So the next thing we looked at look at here is that Noah, in verse 9, walked with God. 
He walked with God. And for us, when we walk with God, it feeds and empowers the spirit within us. When we walk with God, our life begins to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. When we spend time with him, when we look upon his face, and then something happens inside of us, the spirit of God inside of us begins to consume us and change us and move us. When we see what Jesus is like, it's like it it fuels a fire inside of us. And it begins to change us. And the spirit of God begins to take over. You know, check this out. Noah was like his great-grandfather Enoch who before him walked in the Lord. What happened, what happened to Enoch? God loved that dude so much, he was just like, come on, man. Let's, ki- let's kick it. Let's go. I mean, that's a, cool, that's a cool walk with the Lord where he can't even wait to have you with him in heaven. I can't even wait to be with you. That's the walk I want. That's the walk that Enoch passed on to his great-grandson, Noah. He handed it down. He taught that. I mean, this was the walk that was always intended. It was the walk that Adam and Eve had. It's the one that, that, you know, okay, so when Noah is living, he would have actually probably had a relationship with Adam and Eve. Like, he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been that disconnected. For for sure, for sure, his, his father would have known Adam and Eve. Isn't that nuts? And Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve would have been right there in his ears. He would have known it. Adam and Eve got to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. They got to do that. And though his presence was taken away, Enoch discovered this thing. Seth discovered this thing. That you could actually walk with God in spirit. Whoa. That I could pray to God and I can call to God and he can be with me even though I can't see him the way Adam and Eve could. That was so awesome. I remember that story about great-grandfather and, and, and great-great-great-grandfather and how they walk with the Lord. And I remember those stories. And I remember what I was like, and you know what? I'm going to choose to walk with God that same way. Even though I can't see him the way, the way they did, I'm going to walk that path. I'm going to know him. Key point number three, the righteous remnant has a profound and interpersonal relationship with the creator of the universe. It's so funny to type that. It's such an insane statement. How could I even, I I, I can hardly even believe that. Never take that for granted. If you want to be the righteous remnant, if you want to stand out in this world, if you want to be unique, if you want to be a stranger and a pilgrim, then you better start taking your relationship with God really, really seriously. Because if you don't, you will not survive. You won't make it. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Psalm 86, 11, Teach me the way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Crazy. Like, these deserve studies. Unite my heart? Remember we talked about John the other night, John the Apostle, always wanting to put his head on the breast of the Lord? 
to hear his heart because he was longing for something. That his heart and God's heart would be one and that he could truly fear his name. What? Check this out. This is so good. Get ready. Acts 4.13. I just Coming back to Acts just seems appropriate. Listen. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Anybody relate to that? They, what? They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That's so crazy. Can people see that in you? When they see you, they're like, that person has the residue of Christ all over them. What is so different? They don't even have to know the name of Jesus. You ever run into people that you're just like, oh, that was a Christian? <laughs> you know, like you're at the store or something, or you're having a conversation with and you can just tell that the residue of Christ is on them? You know, there's going to come a time where people in America, don't know the name of Jesus. They don't know the gospel story. I've already run into people like this. Ten years ago, I would have never imagined that. I run into people all the time. Not even internationals. I'm not talking about internationals. I'm talking about people who've grown up in America. They know nothing about Jesus at all. Can that person still look at you and say, that person's been with somebody awesome. That person, there's something different about that person. They've been walking with someone. And all the while it was Christ. Let's look back at our story, can we? Am I boring you yet? Okay, you're with me? Okay, let's look at our story. Verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. This is verse 11. Verse 12, and God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher. Well, that's like, what? I'm going to destroy them. Now, make a boat. It's just, that's a little... Okay. God's, God's real creative. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms, shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it with, and within, without, without and within, with pitch, sorry. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the, in the side thereof, with lower second and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, even I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, and of every living thing of, the, of, of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, duh, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after this kind, two of every sort shall, thou come, in, uh, shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all flood that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it 
to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Okay, that's a lot of instruction, by the way. It's a lot going on there. It's a long list of instructions. I am going to destroy the earth. This is how I want you to prepare. Long list of instructions, weird stuff. Like, this is where I want the window to be. It's like pretty specific, God. Okay? It's a lot of stuff. Guess I'll get to work. Listen to 22. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. What? First of all, I have a hard time with Legos. Okay? This sounds really daunting to me. This is, this is a lot. This is a lot. Jake, this is a lot even for you, buddy. I know that you've got, you could probably do this. It'd probably take you 200 years, though. <laughs> this is a lot. And it says Noah just did it. I mean, it seems a little overwhelming to me. Doesn't it sound overwhelming to you? It took him 100 years to do it. He started when he was 550, I think. Is that right, 500? I think he was 500 years old. I mean, that seems like a daunting task, but he did it. Some of y'all... <laughs> Hey, hey, by the way, um, we've got this ministry initiative, and this is what I need you to do. Oh! That's like literally what's happening inside your heart. Sometimes when the pastor's like, hey, brother, I need you to. Uh... Oh, my gosh, y'all. We are spoiled freaking brats. This dude said, take the next hundred years. I need you to build this boat. And he's like. Okay. <laughs> Some of us can't even bother, be bothered with Bible study, even though you know that souls might be there that need salvation. You can't be bothered with that. You, you're busy. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do and how to prioritize your life. But let's be real honest. In a remnant age, some of the stuff y'all are doing doesn't seem real urgent. Some of the stuff you spend your time doing doesn't seem real urgent to me. And in fact, if we were real honest and we got outside of ourselves and we looked through the lens of Noah, many of us would quit most of the worldly crap that we do. We would just quit. And we'd start building our ark. Because a fire is coming. And we, we need people in that ark. And some of you can't even be bothered to help pick up chairs after service. You can't even be bothered to go greet people at the door. You come to church and the first thing you think is that you need to be served. And you go find the coffee and the donuts and then you sit your rear down and you have the conversations you want to have. And you're not thinking about anything that God's thinking about. You go to school and you think you're there to get an education. When God put you there and he gave you that scholarship and he told you, this is where I want you and you haven't shared the gospel one time this year. Disobedient children. Unjust in a remnant age. That's us. Let's be honest. Let's 
I mean, I, in the morning I wake up and I go and I get my kids. I say, it's time for the day. I say, you've got three things you need to do. You need to go pee, you need to brush your teeth, and you need to put clothes on. That's what you need to do. Do you understand that they don't know how to do it? They wake up and they're like, And Clementine will sit down on the toilet and pee, and then she'll sit there for like 15 more minutes like this. <laughs> Drool. And we're getting ready to get in the car, and I'm, I'm like, did you brush your teeth? Yeah. Let me smell your breath. And it smells like a fart in there. <laughs> back, go back upstairs. Go back upstairs, brush your teeth. She's like, I did. Did you use toothpaste? No. <laughs> Disobedient children. This is exactly how we treat God, though. Because he tells us something to do, and then we do it our way. Like as though that's obedience. Oh, I, I, thanks for the instructions on the ark. But you know, I've been watching Fixer Upper and I would really like to do something that's like, I don't know, um, mid-century modern. <laughs> and so I, I appreciate you wanted that window there. But we're going to do, I just love natural light. We're going to run. <laughs> and this is how we treat the Lord. And the Lord gives us instruction. He says, look, I've only given you a couple things to do. I need you to love me with every bit of your soul. And then I need you to love other people. And then I need you to do nothing else but give yourself to sharing the gospel with other people and making disciples. That's it. That's the instructions. Now it's time to get to work. I'll be with you all the way. I've got grace. I've got the church. I've got, your, I've got a book for you. It's going to be awesome. Let's go do it. And you're busy doing it the way you think it should be done. Unrighteous. Key point number four. The righteous remnant is determined to obey God in faith. To obey God in faith. You have to be determined to do it. It's going to take listening carefully. Obedience always requires a lot of listening. You've got to listen carefully. Because the problem with my kids in the morning getting ready, it's not really that they don't want to obey me, but they're not really willing to listen to me. They hear what they want to hear. And that's our problem too. We hear what we want to hear. The things that we like, we hear those things. The things that we don't like, they somehow just go one in one ear and out the other, and it kind of just disappears. Maybe someone else will take that thing. I heard, he said something else. God said something else, but maybe that's, maybe that's Dan's responsibility. I don't know. I didn't catch that. That's how we treat God. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not, not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before he, his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You want to please God? Well, first of all, you have to believe that what he says he means. Whatever he says, he actually means it. And belief is not some sort of abstract feeling you have about God. Belief is 
taking him at his word. Do you take him at his word? Noah did. He, he believed and he obeyed. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come now, and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. He was a righteous remnant. Not only did Noah exemplify righteousness, but he also preached it. Did you know that? Noah was a preacher. You'll find it over in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. What? I, th I thought the guy just built an ark. No. He was a preacher in his generation. He opened his mouth to declare the truth of God, despite the fact that it wasn't received. Can you imagine, by the way, can you imagine, I know, I know, I'm, just getting, I'm going along here. Can you imagine for a second, one person, eight billion people, preaching, no one listening. You think the street preacher on the plaza has a hard time? I mean, this is no, this is no joke. This, who was this dude preaching to? Where? I mean, I'm trying to imagine, like, who is he going to to preach? Who is listening to him? Not a single person. You think Jeremiah had it bad? That dude was upset all the time because no one would listen to him. Boo-hoo. I mean, this dude's preaching righteousness, and there's not a single righteous person on the entire earth but him, and no one's listening to him. Because, because we know that, because they all died. They all died. Key point number five, the righteous remnant preaches righteousness to the wicked generation. Do you do that? Listen to me. This is super important. I can't hit on this enough. We'll touch on it when I do the Daniel part, but listen to me. If you want to call yourself a righteous remnant and you don't preach, shut up. You are not. You are not. You might hold the line on biblical authority, but just like Dan said, what good is that if you're not using it to obey the Lord? Like, what good is all of that knowledge? That doesn't make you a righteous remnant. A righteous remnant opens their freaking mouth to tell the lost world that's dying. They're about to die in judgment. And, and, he's, and you're trying to deliver them. That's your responsibility. Don't question it. Do it. And then here comes God's judgment. Noah was about 600 year old, years old when the rain started falling and the earth burst forth with water. And his family uh, was safe on the ark as the waters rose and the people of the earth were scurrying about. You can imagine it in your mind's eye. They're running around. They don't know what to do. There's nothing to grab hold onto. They're climbing up on the sides of mountainsides and, and, and the water is causing them to slip and to fall. And they get to the very top of a mountain or a hill or the top of some sort of building, a piece of architecture. And they're standing there and they're just waiting for the floods to rise. Their, their, their children slip through their fingers as they, they pass off into the floods. The world was judged, and Noah and his family sit and wait in the ark so that until it lifts up off the ground and is carried away. They're just sitting there. And I would imagine that they're grieving. I would imagine that they're weeping. I would imagine that they had a lot of questions for God that day. I would imagine that Noah 
was very, very sad that no one ever listened to any of his messages. And the, and the boat rose up and floated away. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping thing and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with, with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in 150 days. Every living thing died. It's tough. It's tough to read about. Tough to think about. Tough to get your head around. Lots of questions. But let's read Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, can't we? Are you guys with me? This is super important. What I'm about to say is so important. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the, wi the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. Jump down to verse 18. And Noah went forth and his sons and his, they're getting off the boat. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every fowl whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kind went forth out of the ark and Noah builded an altar unto the Lord. I mean, I think the first thing that he'd want to do is take a serious bath. Okay, that's what I would do is go wash myself because it's probably really stinky on the boat. Okay? There's lots of other things that I'd want to do. I'd be very thankful to God. I'd be like, God, that was wild. What a wild trip, man. Thanks. This looks great. Things are going well. We'll set up shop here. Cool? I'm going to take a shower. A nap would be good. Those animals, they wore me out. I'm going to kick it. We'll get together again later. Noah steps off the ark. He builds an altar, and he worships the God. Listen to me. This is the, this is the part that you have to understand. God remembered Noah, so Noah remembered God. No, Noah remembered God. He worshiped him. He praised him. He thanked him. Listen, the righteous remnant is a grateful remnant. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Grateful for what? Laodicea sucks. I would have loved to have been in the Philadelphian age. That would have been amazing. But last of the last days, that's kind of sucky. What should I be grateful for? I mean, this isn't what I wanted. People hate Christians. People think I'm stupid. I have such a hard time ministering. What am I supposed to be grateful for? Shut your mouth. He's given you everything you ever needed. And though he slay you, you ought to be grateful. If he counts you worthy of a martyr's death, you ought to be grateful. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for everything you gave me. Thank you, me, thank you for, my, for the Holy Spirit that you gave me. Thank you for your word and your instruction. Thank you for the other believers that have been in my life. Thank you, Lord. And all of us sit around and we gripe all the time because church ain't perfect. Because ministry ain't perfect. Are you kidding me? God remembered you. You didn't deserve that. He remembered you. 
in your darkest hour. Remember that? That was just two weeks ago when you had that really dark moment and you felt like crap and you were depressed because something happened and that circumstance seemed too big and you turned to the Lord and he gave you what you needed. He remembered you. What's your problem? Why, you can't remember him. You feel bad, you want to go turn to pornography. Is that how you remember God? You feel bad, you want to go pout in the corner. Is that how you remember God? If you were the only person on earth would you remember God? Or would you say, no one's looking? Doesn't matter what I do, no one's looking anyway. Man. Key point number six, the righteous remnant is thankful. A person who knows that, that they've been delivered has no problem worshiping God. No problem. They don't make any excuses. None. No, no excuses for why they can't have long seasons of prayer. Are you kidding me? The one that's delivered is not debating in the morning whether or not they should make coffee first or worship the Lord. I'll get into my Bible. It's cool. Look, you don't remember that you were delivered. Flippant. Acting like this is all easy and stuff. If it's easy, you're doing it wrong. He remembered you. Full of excuses all the time. Why we can't do it the way God asks us to do it. Why we can't pay attention to him. Man, not the one that knows that they've been delivered. Not the one that knows that they were remembered. Psalm 29, 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Done, done, done. What else do you need to know? You need another verse? To prove, to prove that, that, that God is holy and that you ought to worship him and that he's absolutely beautiful and you're a scumbag and he's giving you the privilege of being with him? What, what else do you need to know? Okay, I can tell this wasn't one of the good feel messages. <sighs> I apologize. Sometimes this happens. I just, ugh. This is rough rough. Listen to me. We need to hear this stuff. We need to hear this stuff because we don't know the severity of our circumstances. We don't know the severity of our situation. We're deluded and we're confused and we think that we're just like everyone else in the world and we're not. We're not. We're not. We are the last of the last of the last and we ought to start acting like it. This is absolutely crucial. Why all of this? Why all this about Noah? What's the significance of all this? Okay, fine. Why Noah? Why Noah? Matthew 24, 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. And one one will be taken. And the other left.
Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that that one day it'll be just like in the days of Noah. And when that time comes, he will return. When, we don't know. Some will be taken. Some will be left. That makes me feel urgent. That makes me feel like I need to do something. Like I need to be something. Like my life has value. Like my life has purpose, and it doesn't matter if I fail from day to day. I've got to do the master's job. I've got to do it. I've got to do the work, and, and I'm going I'm to struggle. I'm not going to be perfect at it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to do it well. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to love him. I'm going to adore him. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to make him the only thing, the only thing in my life, and I'm going to be that righteous remnant. Are you ready for his appearing? There's a man in yonder glory I have loved for many years. He has cleared my guilty conscience, has banished all my fears. He is coming in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and no time will be allotted for you to utter one goodbye. No time to kiss the husband or embrace the loving wife if they are but united in the bonds of holy life. Are you ready, Christian? Ready for shout and trump and voice? Will his coming make you tremble or cause you to rejoice? Are you walking, talking him, uh, with him daily, taking him your care? Do you live so close to heaven that a breath would waft you there? This is our last sermon. We're going to do a Q&A here in a little bit. I think. But if God's showing you something, don't know what it might be. Could be anything. If God's showing you in some way you're not living as a righteous remnant, Let's deal with it. Worship team, come on up. Dear Heavenly Father, I call upon you to show me, show me, like if if no one else in this room makes any decisions, Lord, show me how I might be a righteous remnant, how I might preach and declare your gospel without fear, fear of men, Lord, without fear of the repercussions, that I might truly be prepared whatever whatever lot may fall. 
whatever way the world may turn and, and difficulty may face me, hostility against the gospel that I might face, Lord, show me how to preach. Show me how to walk with you. Show me how to obey you to the nth degree, exactly what you say. I want to obey you. I don't need anyone in this room's affirmation. I don't need for them to think good preacher, good pastor. I don't need them to think highly of me or that, you know, that I'm accepted in any way in their eyes. I need your acceptance. I need the righteousness that you have to offer. And I will pursue that with everything I have. And Lord, the fallout of that, that's yours. That's not mine. Whatever way that goes, that's yours, not mine. Make me your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.